This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number 110, recorded on March 24th, 2023. I'm your co-host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm finally back together with the band, here with Brenda Weigel, my co-host from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Brenda. Hi, everyone, and it's great to be back as a team. So I appreciate it. Yes. So we have two special guests today. The first one briefly introduced is Al Gustafson. Al is the president of the Swifty Foundation and a parent and uh, has been uh, very actively involved in a number of boards and philanthropic organizations. And he's going to talk today about the Swifty Foundation, as well as their program, uh, Gift from a Child. We're very much looking forward to that. We also have Angela Wanders is an associate professor of pediatrics from Lurie Children's in Chicago. She got her training from Tulane and her MD training and then uh, did a residency in hematology oncology fellowship at CHOP and is very actively involved in studying health analytics now and earning a master's in that and as well as a strong background in in research, identifying some important translocations in pediatric brain tumors, and has been critical in developing the uh, brain tumor registry that she's going to talk about that interfaces with Al's team. So welcome to both of you. So I think, Al, we'll start with you. Can you just give us a little bit of background about how the gift from a child came about and what got it off the ground? Sure. Thanks, Tim. You know, it it really, the genesis of it was our son, Michael. He was diagnosed with medulloblastoma uh, at the age of 10 and passed away at the age of 15. And the last summer of his life, it became clear that he wasn't going to survive his disease. And he obviously was distraught and trying to make sense of the journey, his short journey. And he he had two things that really impact the decision I'm about to tell you. One, he always wanted to be a scientist. Science was his favorite subject. And second, he watched a movie where the main character wound up giving his organs away to other people to give them life, so to speak, and improve their lives. So one day, Michael woke up from a nap and he called his mom and I in and said, I've got it. I know what I want to do. I want to donate my body to science and they could use me to find the cure for cancer. And he called that his master plan, right? And so he kept referring to his master plan through the remaining months of his life, but it was really up to his mom and I to figure out how to execute his master plan. And although he was being cared for by a hospital here in Chicago and one in Boston, they just unfortunately couldn't help us with his wish to have a postmortem donation. And so thankfully, uh, Nancy Goodman from Kids Versus Cancer put us in touch with a couple of labs that were willing to accept Michael's tissue or an interest it. And Michael's pediatrician just went beyond the call of duty 
and uh, helped us organize his donation so he could die at home. His body was taken to the funeral home, an autopsy was done there, and then tissue was sent to sick kids and down to Texas Children's. And so his master plan was in effect accomplished, but like many families, after they lose a child that cancer, we started a foundation as a exercise of good grief. And, you know, not having any science background, we, we knew we probably didn't want to invest in clinical trials because we didn't really understand that. And it was a few years into kind of scanning the landscape of where we might be able to make an impact that we realized that this postmortem tissue could really be a catalyst for scientific discovery. And it really was such a balm, if you will, at the end of Michael's life, and also a really important step for the whole family in terms of our grieving, because we continue to have touch points with these labs where Michael's tissue went to. So the focus of our Swifty Foundation really became Michael's master plan. And it was in 2016 that I met Angela at a conference in New Orleans and that that's kind of kind of where it went from there. And I don't know, Angela, if you want to kind of pick it up from there in terms of that origin story of all of this. Andrew, thank you. And this has been a wonderful partnership in terms of pairing or collaborating from a scientific standpoint and also from a parent perspective and a family perspective. As you mentioned, I did my training at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So before meeting Patty and Al and having this kind of really serendipitous conversation and at a meeting in 2016, I had an early exploration with the power of tumor tissue and the limitations of what we currently had. So as a trainee or as a fellow, I worked on genomic discovery in Jack, Jackie Beagle's lab. And you know, through that work, we identified the Kia B refusion and low-grade gliomas. During that time, I kept asking the question of, you know, as a single institution and a large one, we had a certain number of specimens and a certain amount of data, but a lot of the questions that I was asking couldn't be answered at that time with the limitations of what was available. So in 2012, I became involved with kind of the formation of what was then known as the Children's Brain Tumor Tissue Consortium, which has since been rebranded to the Children's Brain Tumor Network much easier to say. And really, you know, that experience and building up a research consortium with the vision and mission to say children are dying from brain tumors and the treatments have not changed in these several decades. And so how can we, you know, come together as a community and, and solve this problem? So then fast forward to 2016, I had started to, as a single institution, really learning from the experiences from Javad Nazarian and Michelle Manje and their work on doing postmortem research collection for DIPG, a fatal brain tumor, a uniformly fatal brain tumor, to ask the question of, there are many other children, such as Michael, who are dying from other brain tumor diagnoses. How can we make this happen and how can I make this happen for my patients at a single institution? And also, you know, what could we do through the Children's Brain Tumor Network? So the timing of this meeting and this conversation were just perfect because, I mean, I literally think I had just arranged for a postmortem donation a couple of days prior. So it was still very fresh in my memory. It is really challenging. It, you know. One of the barriers to this kind of donation is you drop everything and the logistics. 
So it is a really, really complicated process that involves a lot of moving parts. And so, you know, I think I've been really, really fortunate to be involved with this and to have met Patty and Al, who have driven this effort, you know, not just from a funding and an operational perspective, but also pushing everyone involved to really make sure that we were asking the right questions, broadening the postmortem network. And, you know, so from that initial conversation in 2016 to now 2023, this is a national effort with tissue navigators at several large pediatric brain tumor centers and, you know, referrals, you know, that come from all over nationally. This should give you a little bit of the origin story and the genesis of what really came from individuals from different backgrounds having a conversation at the right time with the right motivations to be able to grow into this program. Thank you for that background story and thank you for the tremendous work. And I think both of you have highlighted on, I think some of the real challenges, but really opportunities of having this type of a resource to drive pediatric brain tumor research and and the potential for, for discovery and therapies. I would love to hear a little bit more of of some of the logistics. I think if people are interested in accessing this, it's a delicate conversation. It's a delicate time. And how do you, Al, as a gift from a child and the Swifty Foundation help support the introduction of this information? How do you get the information to the providers? And then what are just some of the real practical steps involved if patient and family is interested in this type of of opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Good way to talk about that is we've always really had two goals that we focused on. And and the first goal is, is, as Angela said, is really kind of trying to solve the logistics equation or problem just in terms of all the moving parts and how every donation seems to be quite unique in, in its own way. And so to solve that logistics problem, so a family, no matter where they live in the country, could have this option if it was the right option for them. And then the second goal is really to change the culture around postmortem collection. You know, when I grew up, no one thought about donating their organs. Now everyone has an opportunity generally when they have their driver's license renewed to make that choice. And we recognize that, God, if a tragedy happened to me, at least someone else could benefit from that. And so, so what we're trying to do is influence some of that cultural change within the pediatric, particularly brain cancer community. Again, so clinicians and other providers are inviting the family to consider this choice and helping them make an informed decision about this. So those are the two goals. And so what, what how we've sort of tried to work with the first one or move towards the first one is, as Angela mentioned, we have tissue navigators that right now there are six of them in six different, what we refer to as regional centers of excellence. And these navigators certainly facilitate postmortem donations within their institution, but the unique thing about them is they work outside their institution. And and so that was one of the things that we insist upon in terms of our kind of funding requirement that, again, for example, the navigator at Lurie, Melissa Williams, would be facilitating donations not only at Lurie, but in Minnesota and Kansas and Missouri and Indiana. 
And these navigators work as a team and we meet every month and we learn from one another. And it's really a team approach because there's, you know, in addition to the what happens within the institution, there's deaners and funeral homes and pathologists that need to be brought into the donation process for, for most kids who die at home. We have to figure out how to organize and facilitate that donation in Wichita, Kansas, for example, and then quickly get that tissue extracted and brought over to the center at Lurie so it could be processed. And we have worked to answer your question more directly, Brenda, about dealing with the sensitive subject matter with families. Early on, back in 2017, 2018, we really gathered a lot of families together, both who had donated and who weren't able to donate, to talk to them about how to talk about this subject. And so we have developed, through their help, a website with lots of resources that are really family-focused to explain the subject matter, hear testimonies from other families, understand how this might work for their child should that be the right choice for them. There is an 800 number that any family or clinician could call that would directly connect the person to a navigator. And then there's an intake and that navigator would help the clinician if it if they had a family that they were helping donate, or if it was a family that just wanted to donate and they weren't, you know, they weren't able to do that through the institution that they were being cared for, they could call that 800 number and a navigator would help them directly. So that's some of what we're we're, we're doing to address both of those goals. That's uh, congratulations on all that progress. It sounds like quite an infrastructure you've built up to address a complex problem. In terms of the logistics, I'm wondering, maybe this is a question for Angela in terms of the the outcomes of, of it. How often is it successful or how often does it fail? Like the tissue has to be handled fairly quickly and, and processed fairly quickly and so forth. And what's the success rate of getting useful information and what kinds of, are you able to grow cell lines and mouse models or just get DNA? What, tell us some about the outcomes. So you ask a crucial question. I think one message I just want to make sure too that we relay is just that we can make this happen. If a child dies in the hospital or more commonly if a child dies at home. The earlier that a referral can be made and even just at the time of recurrence or progression of what we know is a malignant or fatal tumor, just to have that initial conversation, because what it allows us to, to do is just to kind of set up a planning process and to get the regulatory pieces in place, because there are consents, I mean, acquired along the way. So that planning process helps us to get things in place, because one crucial question from a research standpoint, and I think a therapeutic standpoint is, we know children die from brain tumors, but we don't know why children die from brain tumors. Meaning, you know, for the many different types, there are different scenarios. Some are never responded to therapy. Some have become resistant. Some may have secondary complications. So one of the first parts of this are when at all possible, we do try and do like a gross anatomy or just a gross description of where do we see tumor? Where does the pathologist see the tumor? From there, and because this is a postmortem collection, and generally, if at all feasible, 
the whole tumor or the whole brain is removed and then the tumor extracted out and dissected out. Another important point for anyone listening, all of this process is compatible with open viewing. So that is a common question that we get asked by many families and actually many providers. And so, you know, standard autopsy practices are used so that whatever a family wants to do is possible afterwards. But from a research standpoint, one message we also want to send, which is timely tissue recovery is important, but not at the risk of not giving a family enough time to say goodbye to their child and or if we can't make it happen in the ideal time frame. And so, yes, where there are um, cell lines, xenograft cell lines, um, DNA, RNA, protein, paraffin blocks are extremely important to be able to do downstream analysis too. And where this is all collected and cataloged too, we're able to look at tumor sites and then just as importantly, able to look at what does not appear grossly as tumor to be able to genomically characterize, you know, precancer or you know, areas that may still have the genomic mutation, but grossly may not look like a viable tumor. This is where some of the work by, you know, both um, Javad and Michelle's labs and DIPG really helped inform some of these practices. What is really, really fulfilling, and I think just as meaningful as the research outcomes for those of us involved in this process is also talking with the parents, the time of referral and after the referrals are done, we're often able to plan ahead and be able to share in real time after the tumor acquisition, you know, with several labs and ship out um, and, you know, in real time so that this tissue can be distributed broadly to all of the labs who are doing research on a specific tumor type. I know that was probably a little bit of a complicated way to describe the process, but from a research standpoint, I personally feel that this type of donation and this type of discovery is crucial to developing better therapeutics. There are questions that we can ask of the tissue that is just not possible by using surgical specimens for, um, you know, that are obtained at the time of clinical diagnostics. And you're able to get useful information about out of every patient to some degree, or yes. some, so it never really fails, essentially. Correct. Awesome. Correct. And, and Angela, building on that, are there set labs or set studies that are done for every single donation? And then it, is there also a process for people to apply for specific research projects that would involve mm -hmm. the opportunity to utilize some of these tissue donations? It, or are there a couple different processes involved for utilization and, and maximizing the the scientific benefit of these donations? So I'm going to answer the second question first, which is how do researchers get access? So this has been part of the um, partnership with um, the Gift from a Child program, uh, partnering with the Children's Brain Tumor Network. We already had an infrastructure in place to be able to share broadly through our master agreements. And so the short answer is anyone can either reach out directly to the gift from a child or to um, the Children's Brain Tumor Network to ask what is available, you know, based on diagnoses or tumor tissue type. What is also very important is the paired de-identified but clinical information as well. And so when at all possible, we are trying to obtain MRI images through the course of that patient's journey and, you know, the 
clinical particulars of like how how old were they when they were diagnosed? How were they treated? How many progressions? So that, you know, I think that's been one of the limitations to many research projects to date are not having that paired clinical information and only having tumor tissue. So as Al mentioned, um, there are six centers of excellence. What's been interesting and probably not surprising for any of us in the academic world, you know, there is a standard and a tissue navigator associated with each but some of the practices might be slightly different. So I'll just explain what we do at Lurie Children's because that is what I'm most familiar with. We were able to partner directly with our pathologist and able to get buy-in so that, you know, Monday through Friday, there's a pathology technician available that we can receive either the whole patient or if another hospital has referred and they're able to do just the whole brain retrieval, we can receive just the brain itself. And then our pathologist will do a gross anatomical description and parcel out um, and describe for um, snap frozen, match paraffin, and fresh tissue to, for um, cell line generation. So each of the centers have a standard operating or an SOP for their process. And I think it really just depends on some of the centers go through the research lab and other centers such as mine are going working directly with our pathologist. Yep. If I could just add one thing there, you know, one of the things that you know better than I at postmortem collection, there is usually a large amount of tissue. And some of that tissue is always kept at the site where the autopsy and the research is, you know, where the where the patient's autopsy is done and is initially processed. Some of that tissue is always sent to the children's brain tumor network where it goes through all the omic testing and then is available to researchers uh, across the world. And then sometimes a family will also have a particular researcher or lab that they're, they've been working with or they know of, like, you know, we wanted some of our Michael's tissue to go to Michael Taylor. Uh, so we will honor that request as well. We, we're really trying to disseminate the tissue as broadly as possible so it is engaged in scientific discovery. And the other thing is we want to create some expectations of transparency and how that tissue is being used because we feel that's really important for the family, number one, to know. But also around this culture change, if more families are going to be invited, we're going to want to, as families, really sort of see the proof that this is worth doing, right? That really, you know, discoveries are being made that are leading to better therapeutics and better outcomes for kids. I want to tag to you on, this may not come out as a question, but an important point as well that I think from the cultural standpoint we may not have addressed, which is families do want to donate. Um, and the barrier we identified when we were having some of the initial meetings with families who donated and who did not donate um, and we did recently publish on this as well, is that this can help with the grieving process. So I know our focus and the whole goal of why we're doing this is to help answer the question of why do children die from brain tumors and how can we develop more effective therapeutics, you know, so that 20 years from now we're, we don't have the same outcomes. But I, I do want to, you know, also stress that from a grieving process, this has helped many families and many patients themselves find hope or find meaning in their upcoming deaths, knowing that the cancer is going to take their lives. And so Michael's story is definitely the impetus and the inspiration for this. 
But there are so many generous families and patients that this has also continues to provide meaning. We do keep in touch with families who have donated and based on their wishes, we will update them. We can't give them, you know, like granular information of your tumor tissue helped with A, B, and C, but we can update them on findings in the field or how their tissue was shared and with which laboratories. And so I think, you know, this has been, for me as a clinician, you know, taking off my research hat has been a really meaningful um, project to be involved in. Because as a clinician taking care of patients, it is a really tough thing to say to a family, we have nothing more we can do, or we can do things, but ultimately the cancer is going to take your child's life. And so part of that other cultural change and what we're trying to educate providers are parents are mad if they've not had the opportunity and they then hear that this could have been an opportunity. And so that is another thing that we'd really like to stress to you know all providers. And it does not have to be a physician who brings up the question, but sometimes our own fear of asking or broaching the topic gets in the way of actually helping a family through the most challenging times of their life. And that was one of the things that struck me when Al was telling his story about that it, you know, gave Michael comfort and and the family some solace as well to be able to do this. So along those lines, in terms of finding out what has come of it, do you have on your website different publications where the tissue was used so people can look at that? And also, are you expanding to other uh, types of patients beyond those with brain tumors? Well, I can take a first crack at that question. Um, On our website, we we really try to kind of keep current on research studies that have used postmortem tissue and just, you know, citing those and giving links to those studies. You know, to pick up on something Angela said regarding the differences between the, the labs that receive the tissue, you know, certain labs will provide families with some more detailed data on what's happening with their child's tissue. So whether or not cell lines were created, mouse models, if their child's tissue was part of a study, they'll, you know, again, they could they'll communicate that to the family. Our work with Children's Brain Tumor Network, you know, we're trying to, again, take all of the tissue that is housed there and used there by different researchers and then more data added to that. We're trying to figure out a way to take all of that information, disseminate it, and share it with the family. We, we haven't quite figured out exactly how to do that, but there's a wealth of information there that we are working on you know, that puzzle. As a family who is grieving the loss of their child, I'll give you a personal story. Three years after our Michael died, Michael Taylor called us to say that he was about to publish something in Nature magazine about medulloblastoma and particularly recurrent medulloblastoma and how we know now it's a very different biologically than at the initial time of resection. And our son, Michael's tissue was a part of that study. And oh my gosh, it was it was like another touch point in our life with Michael and um, not just simply a memory of Michael, which again are wonderful, but you know, something in the present here that Michael is impacting. So the, the power of that for our own grief and some of the healing that's happened because, you know, the kindness of Michael Taylor reaching out to, to let us know this is just invaluable. And thank you, Al, for sharing that 
personal touch, because that really, I think, culminates with the importance of this effort, not only for the the scientific piece, but also for the family going through this process is it really is incredibly important. And if handled uh, through a process of support, um, as you have really outlined, I think is incredible. We have quickly come to the end of our our time, but I want to just close by asking, what do you see as next steps for expanding this effort and continuing this effort? And what can people do to support you and your organizations and and carrying on this important effort? Well, you know, I I would say the, the end goal here is end of life care for children who lose their lives to brain cancer will uh, include the clinician or another part of the medical team sitting down with the family talking about postmortem collection and whether or not it's right for their child and for their family. A clinician sits down, has sat down with every phase of Michael's journey in terms of you know, deciding together about what, what are the best therapeutic decisions here to make. And, you know, it's ultimately up to the family to decide. It's ultimately up to us to decide what was best for Michael. But if families don't have that choice at the end of a child's life, and that choice then is really kind of in absentia being made by the clinician, and it really robs us of an opportunity to participate in uh, something that can be really pretty profound uh, in our child's journey. So our hope is that, you know, one day this really sort of becomes best practices around end-of-life care, just having this sit down with families. In in addition to that, I think, you know, we we want institutions and clinicians and researchers to know that, you know, this gift from a child program and its six regional navigators are there to help them. You know, if a clinician with all they have to do, I, you know, I can't, I can't imagine. And then, you know, to think that they then have to help a family figure out the logistics of a donation. Well, they don't have to, I mean, they need to talk to the family about the possibility, but then they can refer the family to our network. And then, you know, we sort of take it from there. So I think it's really important just in terms of awareness building that this is a service, not just for families, but for clinicians too, to be able to provide their families, given the fact that they have way more to do than they humanly possible, as far as I'm concerned. I don't I don't know how you all do it. You're really quite wonderful, so. From an objective um, goal standpoint, I think we've met our first pass, which is we have a system set up that for any family or child or provider who wants to, um, you know, initiate a postmortem brain tumor donation, they can pick up a phone or refer to the website. And so we have created that process. This is sustainable. It is a sustainable model and available if you live in a major city or if you live in a really rural area. Where this is aspirational is this has already started to motivate and inspire non-brain tumor movements. Al, in talking with Doug Hawkins from the Children's Oncology Group, that conversation a couple of years ago led to a Children's Oncology Group effort looking at, can we offer this to other children who are dying from non-brain tumor um, causes? 
um, other cancer causes. And so I think, you know, from just thinking about from 2016 to 2023, this is now a national effort um, where all someone has to do is pick up a phone and make a referral for brain tumors and is really kind of aspiring or inspiring um, potential other avenues for other pediatric cancers. Thank you for that. And thank you for all that you have done and for honoring Michael. Uh, and and the, that legacy is huge. My only last comment is that it sounds like the meeting you guys had was serendipitous. And mm -hmm. it really uh, calls uh, to the forefront the need to get back to meetings in person and allow uh, nature to take its course a bit to facilitate unexpected interactions and it was a great story to hear. So thank you for all the work both of you are doing and appreciate your sharing your stories today with us. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having us. Hope we were succinct enough. And it looks like that's it for this week. And I really want to thank Al Gustafson and Angela Wanders for sharing their incredible story and also the importance of postmortem donation and the importance of gift from a child. Uh, that is supported by the Swifty Foundation. So thank you both so much for your time. This was an incredible conversation. And thanks to my co-host, uh, Tim Kripe, who it's great to be back together again. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsumpdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.